Our Father in heaven, I thank you for bringing us out this afternoon. We thank you that we live in a land of freedom where we can openly study and dig into your word. And Father, this afternoon we're going to be looking at some issues and perhaps some differing viewpoints on prophecy. And I pray that you would give me the right spirit to share these things and that we will be able to evaluate what is being discussed in a in a christ-like manner and so i thank you for this opportunity that we have in jesus name amen all right so just by way of curiosity how many of you have either heard presentations or heard about presentations that discuss Islam with respect to fulfillment of prophecy, especially in Daniel 11. How many of you have been exposed to that? So a good number of you. So um, I am not going to name any names because I'm just... I don't feel that that is appropriate. And secondly, the, there's actually more than one idea and more than one person that I'm going to be discussing. And we're also going to look at Daniel 11 from what I think is the biblical perspective. And um, I'll say at the outset, I mean, if you have studied these things, you'll know who I'm talking about. But I just don't um, feel it's necessary to mention any names. And um, both individuals I've actually dialogued personally with one person was in person the other was by um, email and they've both written books and interestingly and we'll get into it but interestingly you look at Daniel chapter 11 and it's famous for culminating with the issue of the king of the north and the king of the south and the final conflict and the glorious land and the glorious holy mountain and Michael standing up in probation closing. And one of these pastors and their viewpoint that we will be talking about, they believe that the king of the south is Islam at the end. And the other pastor believes that Islam is the king of the north. So talk about confusing. Um, but both think that Islam has a huge role. And we're going we're gonna to get into what the ideas are. But what I'm going to do first is just give you an outline of some points of significance that I think we need to look at with respect to Daniel 11. And then we're going to see what the various ideas are that are out there. So I'm going to start off now. Daniel 11 is the fourth of the four major visions in Daniel. You have Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11. Daniel 2 is famous for the golden or for the image with the head of gold, and then Daniel 7 you have the beast, the lion, the bear, the leopard, the dreadful beast with the teeth of iron, and then the little horn. Daniel 8 you have the ram, you have the he goat, you have the little horn, and in Daniel chapter 11 you have kings starting off with Darius the Mede in the past, and then you talk about the various kings of Persia, and then you see the rise of Alexander the Great, and then you see the division of Greece into the four empires, and then you see with Greece that of those four empires that came out of the, out of the division of Alexander's death, 
two kingdoms reign supreme. That's the king of the north and the king of the south. Seleucus and Antiochus were in the north. Ptolemy was in the south. Seleucus and Antiochus were in the Macedonian Syrian area. And in the south, Ptolemy was in Egypt. And then they compete with each other for domination of the world. They become king of the north, king of the south. And then ultimately, pagan Rome defeats um, Greece and becomes the king of the north. And it's after that, as far as who becomes the king of the north after that, that some of the various ideas have come in. I believe very clearly, and I'm going to show you a quote, that papal Rome becomes the king of the north after pagan Rome, just as the little horn of the papacy follows pagan Rome. You can see that very clearly in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. Even in Daniel 2, the mixture of iron and clay, you have a continuation of Rome, a mixture of church and state in divided Europe. So I see the papacy following pagan Rome in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8. So it would make sense that the papacy would follow pagan Rome in Daniel 11 as well. Does that make sense? So that's just sort of a big picture, quick overview. Where the debate comes in then is who the king of the north is at the end of the prophecy, who the king of the south is at the end of the prophecy. The king of the south at the beginning of the prophecy was, was Egypt. And the question then is who is the king of the south that pushes at the king of the north or attacks the king of the north in Daniel 11, verse 40. So that's just a brief introductory overview to the big picture of Daniel. Now, I'll say this as well. When you look at the big picture of Daniel, then you start to fill in the detail. Daniel chapter 2, you end with a stone striking the image. Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, after the kingdoms of this world, you have the judgment. Daniel chapter 8, after the kingdoms of this world, you have the cleansing of the sanctuary. Daniel chapter 11, after the, kings of the kingdoms of this world, Michael stands up. Now, if you look at it in totality, what you can say is, Daniel 2 is telling us that Jesus is coming again. But Daniel 7 is telling us that in order for Jesus to come back, there must be a judgment to take place first. And in order for the judgment to be finished, Daniel 8 shows us that the sanctuary in heaven must be cleansed. And Daniel 11 and 12 shows that when the sanctuary in heaven is cleansed, Michael stands up, probation closes, and Jesus comes back. So that's a big picture of Daniel, the standard Adventist prophetic interpretation. Now, Daniel 11 has certainly brought about a variety of viewpoints from way back in the days of the pioneers. You may be aware of the fact that Uriah Smith and James White had different viewpoints on Daniel 11. And Ellen White actually told them to stop, stop fighting with each other about it, um, just because um, Uriah Smith had um, the, the review and he had the voice of the review that he could speak through. And James White, of course, was a senior statesman in the church. And Ellen White said it wasn't a good thing for them to be pushing their differing viewpoints at that time. We live in a different era now where a lot of different ideas are being put out there. And um, some of the prominent views that are being pushed right now, especially among Bible-believing conservative Adventists, um, are interesting at the very least. So we're going to look at that. Now, I want to take you to Daniel 11, starting in verse 30, and I'm going to read a statement 
from Ellen White, and I will tell you up front, this is a Seventh-day Adventist meeting. We're Seventh-day Adventists, Ellen White. We consider to have divinely inspired understanding, and I believe that she can give us helpful insight on some of these complicated issues. And she doesn't say much about Daniel 11, but the statement that I'm going to read is her most significant statement about Daniel 11. And before I read this statement, this statement from Daniel 11, I believe, forms the template for understanding the end of the prophecy of Daniel 11, the, the section on 40 to 45. And you may hear a variety of different interpretations out there on Daniel 11. And what I would suggest to you is that if they don't include this statement as part of their interpretation, chances are they're going to, to go, veer off from a clear, thus saith the Lord, into speculation. So we're going to look at this statement. This is Manuscript Releases, Volume 13, page 394. And I'm going to write this template on the board once we read this statement. Manuscript Releases, Volume 13, page 394. And here we read, We have no time to lose. Troublous times are before us. The world is stirred with a spirit of war. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. The prophecy in the 11th of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. So notice, and she keeps going, but I'm, I'm going to stop right here. She says, much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. And she says it has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. She wrote this over 100 years ago. So as a student of prophecy, I want to know what history is going to be repeated, right? So you want to understand, okay, much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. So as a student of prophecy, I want to know which part of the history is going to be repeated. Is that not a good question? Because that which is going to be repeated, at least at the time of her writing, is future. So let's keep reading. Now she's going to tell us where we should look to find the part of the history that will be repeated. She says, in the 30th verse, a power is spoken of that shall be grieved. Now she starts to quote, and she's going to quote Daniel 11 from, from a part way into verse 30, all the way through the end of verse 36. So let's read this. She says, he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant, so shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. And then she quotes the verses 31 through 36. And we read, An arm shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. 
Now when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed, and the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. Now, Ellen White is done quoting Daniel 11. Notice what she says next. Scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. So before she quotes verses 30 to 36, she says much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. And so you're saying, I want to know which history is going to be repeated, right? Now she tells us what's going to be repeated. It's the verses of 30 to 36, the history described in 30 to 36. Now, we don't have to guess as to what period of time that's talking about, and I'll show you briefly. Now she goes on and has another paragraph, and towards the end of this next paragraph, after quoting Daniel 11:31 to 36, she says, let all read and understand the prophecies of this book, for we are now entering upon the time of trouble spoken of, and then she quotes Daniel 12, 1 to 4, which is a continuation of the prophecy of Daniel 11, and it wraps up in verse 4. So you can make a strong case for this. You can say, when you look at the prophecy of Daniel 11, especially in her day, at least just based on the various views that are out there, most people would agree that in her day, the la at least the last half of verse 40 through 45 was yet future. And she's saying that 31 to 36 is going to be repeated similarly. And then she quotes Daniel 12, 1 to 4, where probation closes. So when I look at that, to me, that strongly suggests that 40 to 45 is going to follow a very similar outline to 30 to 36. Does that make sense? Because Ellen White says, much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. Then she quotes 30 to 36, and she says a new power comes onto the scene. And then she says scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. Now, I should tell you that, especially if you st study the standard interpretation of Daniel 11 up through verse 35, many Adventists are in agreement <coughs> with Uriah Smith through at least verse 35. The ships of Chittim coming we believe represents the barbaric, uh, a barbaric tribe, the Vandals, who came um, and were part of the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476. That's verse 30. And then it says, a new, then Ellen White says, a new power comes on the scene that has intelligence with them that, in, that forsake the Holy Covenant. We believe that this is the rise of the papacy. And verse 31 onward, is the rise of the papacy as the king of the north. Now, let me just give you a brief template. I'm going to show you the template that I believe that we can look at, which will be a roadmap to understand for 40 to 45. Then I'm going to share with you the two prominent views that are circulating in Adventism right now that suggest that Islam 
is going to be a major part of the fulfillment of the end of Daniel 11. And then I'm going to show you what I believe is the, uh, a more accurate biblical template to follow for the prophecy of Daniel 11. So Ellen White quotes 30 to 36. She says, scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. So let's look at this template, and I'm going to write on the board here, and um, hopefully you'll be able to, to see. That's Manuscript Releases, Volume 13, page 394. So when you look at 31 to 36, one of the key things that happens in verse 31, it says, arms shall stand on his part. So military power stands on the part of the king of the north, the one who has intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. And in verse 30, with the ships of Chittim leading to the downfall of the Western Roman Empire in 476, and we've basically seen a linear prophecy up until that point, um, now we see military power standing on behalf of the king of the north, which Ellen White says is a new power. When you look at Daniel 7, you look at Daniel 8. In Daniel 7, you have the little horn coming up, and it plucks up three horns by the roots. But in order for the papacy, which is the little horn, to destroy those three horns, which were the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, and the Heruli, they needed the assistance of military power because they didn't have military power themselves to accomplish the destruction of those three barbaric nations. Does that make sense? So Daniel 11.31 is simply a, another way of showing how this little horn comes up and three horns are plucked up by the roots. You go to Daniel chapter 8, and it says, A host was given against the daily by reason of transgression. That's King James' language to say an army was working on behalf of the little horn to destroy those who were in its way. So you see it in Daniel 7, you see it in Daniel 8, now you see it again in Daniel 11. So military power is standing on behalf of the papacy, and historically, uh, and this is in Uriah Smith, I could point you to other resources, but Clovis, the king of the Franks, converted to Catholicism, and it was his military power in modern-day France that assisted the papacy in uprooting the barbaric nations from Europe, and this begins in 508. And this is significant because in verse 31, it talks about the daily being taken away. And when you go to Daniel 12, verse 11, there's a time prophecy connected to this event in 508, which is the 1290 and the 1335, and that's another way to get you to 1798, and it gets you to 1843. <coughs> so verse 31 is an important transition point in Daniel 11, and Ellen White is saying it's important because it's creating a template for us to follow to understand the end of Daniel 11. So this is the rise of the papacy. They don't have their own military power. They get Clovis to help them out. And then it's after the military power stands on its behalf. It says, they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. So now we see the abomination of desolation, which this is the second time now in the book of Daniel that we see this. The abomination of desolation was first mentioned in Daniel chapter 9 as it relates to the destruction of Jerusalem when the Roman army surround the city of Jerusalem. But in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, the abomination of desolation is the union of church and state when Rome, the church of Rome, becomes a church-state power. And so this is describing the abomination of desolation. And then 
It says they do wickedly against the covenant. So they go against the covenant, which the covenant is God's law. And this dovetails perfectly with Daniel 7.25, speaking of the papacy, the little horn, he shall speak great words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. So we're just talking about the same thing here, military power, uniting of church and state, going against God's law, against the covenant, against the Sabbath. Um, so pretty straightforward. And with this union of church and state, abomination of desolation, going against the covenant of God. Then we see in verse 33 that God's people are persecuted. Verse 33, they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. So once the military assists this church power and turns it into a church state power, which is the abomination of desolation, they go against the law of God and then they persecute those who stand for God's law. So they persecute the saints. So point one, military power. Point two, abomination of desolation. Point three, they go against the covenant and the Sabbath. Point four, they persecute the saints. And this persecution lasts until the time of the end. And Interestingly, in Daniel 7.25, there's a time prophecy connected to the persecution of the saints, right? Verse, Daniel 7.25, what's that time prophecy? And he shall think to change times and laws, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and they shall be given unto his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. So when it talks about persecuting the saints for many days until the time of the end, what's that time period? The 1260 days, which goes till when? 1798. Okay. And then, if you skip ahead to verse 40, you see at the time of the end, the king of the south pushes at him. The word push is the Hebrew word nagak, which means to gore or to give a deadly wound. So at the end of this reign of 1290 or 1260 years, the king of the north or the papacy receives a deadly wound. And what Ellen White says, she quotes this, and she says, much of the history of this prophecy will be repeated. And then she says, scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. So when I look at Daniel 11, 40 to 45, my belief then is that I can follow the same system which is a resurrected papacy when the deadly wound is healed. And I'm going to see a similar pattern of a military power assisting the papacy that will lead to a union of church and state, which will lead to them going against the covenant or the law of God and against the Sabbath, which will lead to the persecution of the saints. But then they will come to their final end and none will, none will help them, as verse 45 says. I see that template for 40 to 45, but we'll talk about that when we get there. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to share with you some concerns I have about ideas that are floating around in Adventism that suggest that Islam is the missing link to the understanding of the prophecy of Daniel 11. 
And I've been hearing about this for a while now, for a few years, and it's becoming more and more popular. And I think the reason being is that people are looking at the news and they see ISIS and they see the attention that ISIS is being given and they're attracted to the idea that perhaps radical Islam through ISIS will take action against the papacy or against the Jews or whatever it may be and that will usher in the final events of prophecy. And what I'm going to suggest to you as, after we go through this is that we have to be very careful that we don't try to squeeze newspaper headlines into Bible prophecy. Listen, as Seventh-day Adventists, we already have a very clear understanding of how the key final events are going to take place. And I talked about that this morning. Revelation 13 makes things very clear. And when the Pope came six weeks ago, it was a reminder that our standard Adventist prophetic interpretation is right on the money. Now, it doesn't mean that two weeks from now the Pope's going to be calling for a Sunday law. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it was a reminder that everything we've always believed about the papacy and the role they would have at the end of the world and how the United States will work with the papacy, that is being confirmed before our very eyes, and we can go to Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11, and show it. We can go to Revelation 13, and it's very clear. We can go to Revelation 17, and it's very clear. We can see it again in Revelation 19. There's a lot of different ways to show how the United States and the papacy will work together at the end of time to bring in a Sunday law that will bring the final crisis. And we're not guessing. It's not speculative. We have a more sure word of prophecy. And it's very clearly delineated in the book Great Controversy, in the book Early Writings, and in other places of the spirit of prophecy. Ellen White's very clear on the role of the papacy in the United States in harmony with our standard Adventist interpretation. And I might add that Adventists were not the first ones to come up with the idea that the papacy was the Antichrist, Martin Luther had that figured out 500 years ago. So that is standard prophetic interpretation. Before I even get into the Islam stuff, here's one concern that I have. If Islam truly is the missing link and the actions of Islam against Christianity will lead to the final events of Earth's history. And if it's so important for us to understand that, how come we never heard about that in the spirit of prophecy? Because it's not there. I can't find one page in her writings that says, when radical Islam strikes the papacy, that will be your sign that Jesus is coming soon. It's not there. So let me share with you, again, there's two views. We're going to go through two of them. Let me remind you what they are. The first view that we're going to look at is the idea that actually the papacy is the king of the north at the end. So I agree with this pastor that, hey, we're in agreement. We believe in the same entity who the king of the north is in verse 40 down to the end. We're in agreement. I'm in agreement with him that, yes, the king of the north is the papacy, but he believes the king of the south is Islam. The other view retains Uriah Smith's view that after verse 35, the king of the north no longer is the papacy, it becomes France during the French Revolution, and that's from verse 36 to 39, and then in verse 40, the king of the north becomes Turkey. And then Turkey 
is the king of the north, Islamic Turkey is the king of the north, and he believes that basically everything has been fulfilled through verse 44, and we're just waiting for verse 45 to take place, and then Jesus will come back. So let's look at the first idea, and this is an idea that is um, being promoted by one pastor in particular, although there are others, even I believe at the seminary, who have accepted this as well. And the idea in a nutshell, and I've read a good portion of his book, and I've looked at several of his presentations, and I've actually talked with him in person, and I will say this, he is a very nice man. He's a very nice Christian man, and, and I want to be charitable to him because I think he's a good man, and I don't think people are going to be lost because of this view. I just don't think it's helpful to people. But he is a good man, he's a nice man, and I think this is a case where we can have an honest disagreement and be there's, well, there's never a reason to not be Christian toward each other, but this is a time where it's, this is not a salvational issue. We can have an honest disagreement, but I just have concerns that it may be leading people to look in the wrong place. So his basic idea is that there are three phases of Islam historically, and he believes that you can show that in Daniel 11. The first phase is Arabic Islam, and he believes that that is seen especially in the Crusades against um, the papacy starting in around 1000 and a little after that. And he places that in um, historically in verses 25 to 28. And then he believes that the second phase of Islam is the Islamic Ottoman Empire, which he believes historically is seen in verses 31 to 36. And I think he does believe that you can see... Um, the persecution of the saints and of the reformers during the 1260 years. Um, and then he believes that the third phase of Islam in Daniel 11 is radical Islam starting in verse 40. And he believes that verse 40 where it says, and at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him or attack him. He believes that that's actually yet in the future. So this is my first major point of disagreement with his interpretation is that in his book and in his presentations, he teaches that the time of the end is 1844. And I think we can show pretty clearly from the book of Daniel that the time of the end began in 1798. Daniel 7:25 shows that there's the period of persecution for the 1260 years of the saints. And then in Daniel 11, 35, we see that the persecution continues until the time of the end. And you see this again in, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, where God's people are scattered for the 1260 years. So once you get to the end of the 1260 years, you get to the end of the persecution of the saints, that takes you to the time of the end, and that is 1798. And this particular individual somehow believes that 1844, rather, is the time of the end, at least the way he says it in his book. And then he says that rather than being at the time of the end or at 1844, that, and it is true that some, some translations say it's in the time of the end, but most translations say it's at the time of the end. He believes then that Daniel 11 verse 40 is sometime in the future, radical Islam will attack the papacy and you can just read the verses that follow. The king of the north will then come against the king of the south like a whirlwind with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships. He will enter into the glorious land, and he believes that this represents literal Israel as well as God's people. 
And then there's Edom, Moab, and Ammon that will escape out of the hand of the papacy. He believes that these are Muslims that will escape the attack of the papacy at the end of the world after radical Islam attacks the papacy. He believes that not all of Islam will be destroyed, that there are moderate Muslims, and then there's radical Muslims, and it's the radical group that will be destroyed, not the moderate ones. And he believes that Libya and Ethiopia, um, there's a struggle between radical Islam and the moderates, and just a variety of things. And, and basically, you go down the list, and he believes that ultimately this will culminate with the close of probation and Michael standing up. Now, I looked at some of his presentations from fairly recently, and he's very interested in what ISIS is doing now. And now he is teaching that ISIS could be the fulfillment of this prophecy of the King of the South attacking the papacy. And if ISIS attacks the papacy, then we'll see the final events and probation will close and Jesus will come back. And he's very convinced of this viewpoint. He believes that there are the three phases of Islam throughout Daniel 11, the Crusades in 25 to 28, and then the Ottomans in 31 to 36, roughly, and then radical Islam at the end. And um, there's some challenges that I certainly see with um, this interpretation. First of all, we need to go back to our template. Ellen White says that 31 to 36, it's going to be very similar before Jesus comes back. And I believe that 40 to 45 follow a very similar template. Now, just to be picky with some of the things that he says, um, he places verse 30 as um, happening sometime much after 508. In fact, he believes that these are Islamic naval victories in 1538 and in 1560, yet that does away with the, the beginning of the time prophecy for the 1290 and the 1335, where the daily is taken away, the abomination of desolation is set up, and Daniel 1211 links that to the starting point for the 1290 and the 1335. So if you're already into the 1500s in verse 30 with Islam, you're way overshooting the starting point for the 1290 and the 1335. Furthermore, when you look at verses 25 through 28, I believe that Uriah Smith's interpretation of that makes much more sense, describing the struggle between Caesar Augustus and Mark Antony, where Mark Antony and Caesar Augustus were initially the closest of friends, and then Mark Antony goes, and Mark Antony's married to Caesar Augustus' sister, Octavia, but then he goes down to Egypt, and he meets Cleopatra, and Cleopatra wins his heart, and now Augustus and Mark Antony are against each other. Antony's the king of the south. Augustus is the king of the north. And you have the culmination with the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, where Caesar Augustus destroys um, Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Cleopatra is taken captive. Mark Antony commits suicide. And many of the soldiers um, for Mark Antony and Cleopatra sided with Caesar Augustus. And, you know, it's a perfect fulfillment of that prophecy where they would speak lies at the same table, they would have parts of mischief towards each other. And um, the other issue 
is that um, in the, this pastor's interpretation, he totally glosses over the fact that in verse 23, there's a league made, and Uriah Smith does a very nice job of showing that this league was the league that the Romans made with the Jews in 161 BC. And throughout the prophecy of Daniel 11, the prophecy of Daniel 11 focuses on what happens to God's people and how they got, get caught between the king of the north and the king of the south. And by placing 23 tw through 26, 25 through 28 into the Crusades, it's missing the fact that the league that the Romans made with the Jews had a very profound impact on God's people. So I don't see anything in the book that even addresses what that league is, and I believe Uriah Smith's interpretation of that is a lot better. Now, my main issue with this interpretation is that Daniel 11, verse 40, it says, at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. I have a hard time believing that the deadly wound is not being described here. And if you accept the premise that Daniel 11, verse 40, is a description of the deadly wound in 1798, then if you're saying, no, it's actually radical Islam attacking the papacy, you've come up with a very significantly different interpretation. And when I look at Daniel and Revelation, they fit together like a glove. Ellen White says the books are one. So Daniel 2, you don't see a whole lot of detail. Daniel 7, you see that um, there is a little horn power. Daniel 8, you get more of an idea that the papacy will come to his end. And Daniel 11, you specifically see that there's a connection between the 1260 years, the persecution of the saints, that the persecution of the saints will continue until the time of the end. And at the time of the end, the, the king of the south delivers a deadly wound to the king of the north so that he cannot continue to persecute God's people for a period of time. And so that part of prophecy and of history is totally ignored and Islam is elevated above that, that key history. So I appreciate the fact that he agrees that the king of the north is still the papacy in verse 40, but to say that the king of the south is radical Islam here is a big problem. The other thing is, and he's written in the appendix of his book why he doesn't believe that atheistic communism can be the king of the south, and it was atheistic France that delivered the deadly wound, but remember this, the king of the north and the king of the south were always powers that were vying for world domination. And it was Seleucus and Antiochus in the north, Ptolemy in the south down in Egypt. And they wanted control of the whole world. They weren't content with half. They wanted the whole thing. And so when you look at Revelation chapter 11, where you have a description of the French Revolution, you see in Revelation chapter 11 a beast that comes up from the bottomless pit. And that beast describes atheism, which gave rise to the French Revolution. And then from the French Revolution, it was atheistic France that gave the deadly wound to the papacy. And from that day onward, it was a struggle between 
the papacy and Christianity versus atheism as to who would have world domination. That's what we call the Cold War. Was it going to be the Christian West or the Communist East? We're talking about fighting for world domination. You think about the Bay of Pigs Cuban Missile Crisis where you read some of the behind the scenes stuff with President Kennedy where he wasn't sure that Tuesday would show up. He didn't know. And when you're talking about King of the North, King of the South, you know, radical Islam might be able to make some waves in the Middle East, but radical Islam is not in a position to gain control of the whole world. That's just not going to happen. Yeah, they can make some noise, absolutely. And I'm not saying that ISIS is of zero significance. Yeah, there's something that we're watching in the news, and we're watching the atrocities that they're committing towards Christians, and it is something that we're watching. But to say that that's the fulfillment of Daniel 11, verse 40, when I think we can show very clearly that Daniel 11, verse 40, is atheistic France attacking the papacy and giving it a deadly wound, which then gives rise to um, the Russian Revolution and, and Eastern Europe. And it was from France that Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto. And it was communism that put a check on Christianity from that point onward until um, the fall of the Iron Curtain in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So that's one issue that I have. And then, you know, basically you're saying, okay, so radical Islam attacks the papacy. The papacy comes back and attacks radical Islam. And then from that, Michael stands up and delivers God's people. Um, to me, that's a bit interesting as well. But anyway, he's a good man. He's a nice man. I just, those are some of the concerns that I have. And, I, and, and people are getting into it. A lot of people are just thinking this is the greatest interpretation of Daniel 11 they've ever seen. And yet there are some serious holes where significant prophetic historical events are being overlooked, especially the deadly wound. And also, this statement from Manuscript Releases, volume 13, page 394, where Ellen White outlines, or she quotes 31 to 36, which is a description of papal domination during the 1260 years where they persecute the saints for many days. And then they finally get the deadly wound. And that part is overlooked, and yet Ellen White says, scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. Now, I'm going to talk about the other view, and then we'll talk about what I believe is the um, correct view, and then we'll wrap it up here. Let me read to you. This is now moving to the other view. This is the view, which has been surprising to me, that in the last few years there have been a group of Adventists some, most of them pastors and some other individuals who say, you know what, we think that this idea that the king of the north is the papacy and the king of the south is atheistic France and it's a, it's a battle over God's people and the glorious land and then the glorious holy mountain, we think that's wrong. It's spiritualized. We, we need to get back to the pioneer view of Uriah Smith that the king of the north is Turkey. And it's surprising to me because um, most if not all, well, basically everything that Uriah Smith said would happen about Turkey never happened. 
So to go back to Turkey really doesn't make sense to me. They have some interesting historical points that they mention, but it doesn't really fit a end time, an end-time apocalyptic viewpoint. Um, and again, these are good people that mean well. Um, let me read to you um, what they say um, about this um, section of Daniel 11. They say that, um, and by the way, they're in agreement with me about the league in verse 23, the league made with the Jews in 161 BC. So there's certainly things that I agree with, with them also. But they say that at the time of the end in 1798, the king of the south was literal Egypt, and the king of the north was Turkey, and um, the king of the north came against um, France and Egypt, and that led to um, Turkey then entering into Palestine, but then those in Jordan, who they say are Edom, Odom, Moab, and Ammon, escaped out of their hand, and this led to tidings out of the east and out of the north. The, the tidings out of the east were Persia, or modern-day Iran. Out of the north was Russia, and that led to what's called the Crimean War, um, I believe in the 1850s, and that takes you all the way down to verse 44, and they say that the last thing that needs to take place is that the king of the north, Islamic Turkey, will plant an Islamic caliphate in Jerusalem, and when that happens, then probation will close, and Jesus will come back, and he will stand up to deliver his true people, even though Islamic Turkey is attacking Jerusalem. So... Um, that's not as prominent a viewpoint as the first viewpoint that I mentioned, so I'm not going to spend as much time on it. But what I would say is that, first of all, this viewpoint that I'm mentioning, they subscribe to the idea that the King of the North switches from the papacy to France in verse 36. Yet Ellen White in Manuscript Releases, volume 13, page 394, she quotes verses 31 through 36. And in verse 36, she keeps the king, described in verse 36, connected to the same power that rose to the scene in verse 30. That's the king of the north of the papacy. And in verse 36, she doesn't switch the king of the north to France. It's still the same power. So that's one issue. The other issue is they say, well, you know, you're spiritualizing the end of Daniel 11 by making it literal, and you have to stay s s um, literal. You can't switch to spiritual and symbolic um, because the whole prophecy is literal. And so my question to them is like, okay, so you're saying that the glorious land is the literal, is literal Israel, the glorious holy mountain is Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and so Islam comes after the Jews, and then they come after Jerusalem, and they plant an Islamic caliphate in Jerusalem, and based on Islam going after Jerusalem, which ceased to be the capital of God's people in 34 AD, that will then lead Michael to stand up to deliver the children of Daniel's people, yet the children of Daniel's people that are being delivered is spiritual Israel. You see what I'm saying there? So they're saying in the literal view through verse 45, it's an attack against literal Jews, but then spiritual Jews will be delivered in chapter 12, verse 1. So that's, 
the, the problem with that interpretation. So there's the two interpretations. One view is that Islam is the king of the south. The other view is that Islam is the king of the north. And in both cases, both parties are looking for Islam to do something apocalyptic that will usher in the second coming of Jesus. And as I said earlier, nowhere in the writings of the spirit of prophecy does Ellen White say, when Islam attacks Christianity, then you know that the end is near. So let me show you in a nutshell, verses 40 to 45, what I believe is the more correct interpretation. And by the way, I don't have it all figured out, and there's some certain areas in 40 to 45 that I'm still digging into, but the overall big picture, I believe, makes the most sense. Now, let's look at this template again that Ellen White says, much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. She then quotes 31 to 36. She then says, scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. She says a few more things, and then she quotes Daniel 12, 1 to 4, and she said in that same section that the prophecy of Daniel 11 has nearly reached its complete fulfillment, and the part that in her day hadn't reached its complete fulfillment was basically the last part of 40 through 45, because in her day, the deadly wound had already taken place. And I believe that you have the deadly wound in Daniel 11, verse 40. So here's our template. 31 through 36, arms stand on the part of the papacy, Clovis of the Franks, military power. Then you have the abomination of desolation, which is the union of church and state. Then they go against the covenant, against the law of God by thinking to change times and laws. This leads to them to persecute the saints even to the time of the end, which is 1798. But then they receive a deadly wound when atheistic France pushes at them in 1798. Then you look at the last half of verse 40, and it says, after it says, the king of the south shall push at him, then it says, the king of the north shall come against him, which is the king of the south, like a whirlwind with chariots, with horsemen, and many ships. What does that sound like? Military power. So, when the papacy makes its comeback as the king of the north, in the last half of verse 40, what's the first thing that it uses? Military power, just like you saw in verse 31. He, and it says, he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. I believe that we see, saw at least the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy when, when the Pope and Catholic Europe teamed up with Ronald Reagan and Protestant America to lead to the downfall of atheistic, communistic Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. And I suspect there might even be more to it than that. But that's at least the beginning of it. After you have military power in Daniel 11:31, it says, they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. That's the union of church and state. And when you look at Daniel 11:41, it says, he shall enter also into the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown. But the word countries in the Hebrew is supplied. It's not there. The King James added it. So it really should just say many shall be overthrown. Many people shall be overthrown. So after the papacy has military power by proxy, just as it did in 508, propping it up, then you will see a union of church and state. When the papacy enters into the glorious land, I believe that the glorious land represents the worldwide territory of God's true remnant people. 
And when the papacy enters into the glorious land, it's for the purpose of conquest. And the way that the papacy will conquer the territory of God's people is to go against the law of God, to go against the Sabbath by uniting church and state. And many Seventh-day Adventists will be overthrown, those who are not following God. And so when the glorious land is entered into, you have the abomination of desolation where the covenant or the law of God is pushed at or it's it's done away with and so military power abomination of desolation going against the sabbath you you skip on down you see that there's um i'll just tell you it talks about edom moab and ammon shall escape out of his hand i believe you know edom they were the descendants of esau moab and ammon the descendants of lot and they were related to god's people but they weren't god's people and i believe that these are people in babylon who come out and who join the remnant under the loud cry message then it says he shall stretch forth or that he will enter into egypt um, he shall stretch forth his hand upon the countries. The land of Egypt shall not escape. I think that's the rest of the atheistic nations that are still in existence. Verse 43, having power, the treasures of gold and silver, no man can buy or sell. And then it talks about um, the Libyans and the Ethiopians. The Libyans and the Ethiopians, interestingly in the, interestingly, in the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, were the last line of defense for Mark Antony and Cleopatra, which represented the king of the south. And if you look at it historically, Islam has always been in alliance with the Soviet Union and with the communist nations against the West. And so where I'm at in my study, and I could be wrong, but I believe that Libya and Ethiopia symbolically represent Islam, and they're going to be overrun by the papacy as well. So do I see Islam in Daniel 11? Yes, but I see it as a minor ancillary player, not as the, the key to unlock the whole prophecy. It's just a minor point. So as the papacy is trying to conquer the world, he's conquering the glorious land or God's people. But Edom, Moab, and Ammon escape out of his hand. And if you look at the map, he's passing through, you know, you look at the old map. Here's the glorious land and Egypt's down here. And the king of the north comes through and he thinks he's conquered all of God's people. Seemingly Adonis are dropping like flies with a Sunday law. He comes down to Egypt and Libya is over here. Ethiopia is down here. Seemingly he's conquered the whole world. But then tidings out of the east and out of the north trouble him, and that's pointing straight to Jerusalem where the glorious holy mountain is. And the glorious holy mountain, if you look at Joel 2.32, Psalms 48.1 and 2, represents the remnant, which I believe represent the 144,000 who survived the shaking of Adventism after the king of the north enters into the glorious land and has seemingly conquered the whole world. And then, based on the fact... And by the way, tidings out of the east and out of the north will trouble the papacy, so he will go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. So there you see it, the persecution of the saints. They have the military power, they unite church and state, they go against the law of God, they issue a Sunday law, and then when the loud cry, which is the tidings out of the east and out of the north that's being given by God's people, is given, then the papacy goes out to persecute the saints, and it parallels Revelation 12, 17. The dragon was wroth with a woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. And then in verse 45, it says, he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. And the New King James 
correctly translates. It's not in the Glorious Holy Mountain. It's between the sea and the Glorious Holy Mountain. So you have the Mediterranean Sea here. You have Jerusalem or Mount Zion here. And they've set up their final union of church and state, which culminates in a death decree. And you have the sea over here, which represents people. And you have the whole world against a small little remnant. And seemingly the sea of people is going to wipe the remnant off the map. And seemingly God's people are going to be destroyed. And it's at that time that Michael shall stand up to deliver God's people. And you'll notice with this interpretation, that's actually a standard Adventist interpretation. It doesn't add really anything new or exciting or different. It's just a standard idea that at the end of time, sometime after 1798, the papacy will have a resurrection and he's going to come against God's people. He's going to enter into the glorious land with a purpose of conquest. There's going to be a Sunday law. It's going to come in stages. It's going to start off by just being a day of rest and then you can't work and then you'll be fined. Then you'll be put in prison and finally there will be a death decree. That's the escalation of the, uh, of the Sunday law and it's in the glorious holy mountain which is Jerusalem it's a smaller territory of the what we initially started off with the glorious land that's where the faithful remnant will be found and they will be a symbol of the fact that seemingly when Satan who gave his power seat and authority to the papacy Satan has seemingly conquered the whole world then a message comes that lightens the earth with its glory that says Babylon the great is fallen is fallen and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean bird for all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies and that's when the message will say and I heard another voice from heaven saying come out of her my people that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not of her plagues for her sins have reached unto heaven. God hath remembered her iniquity. So just at the time that the papacy thinks that it has conquered the whole world, that's at the time that its sins reach unto heaven. So listen, why do I share this presentation? The reason why I share this presentation today is because I'm concerned that many well-meaning Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventists are getting caught up in potentially sensational ideas about Islam. Should we be watching what ISIS is doing? Sure. Should we be praying for the Christians who are being persecuted by them? Absolutely. But is ISIS the fulfillment of prophecy as the king of the south as radical Islam that will attack the king of the north that will lead to the final events of this earth's history? That's not the standard prophetic understanding that we've been given as a people of Seventh-day Adventists. The standard prophetic understanding that we've been given as a people of Seventh-day Adventists, you see it in the books of Daniel and Revelation. You see it in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11. You see it in Revelation 13, is that it is through the papacy to whom the dragon gave his power, seat, and authority, and it's through the second beast of Revelation 13, the United States of America, that all the world will wonder after the beast, and in the prophecy of Daniel 11, I believe that as the final events unfold, even Islam is going to jump in line with the papacy and join with them. And they're not going to be the missing link to understanding. You know, when I've 
and I've been on email lists and gotten emails, and it was like when the Olympics came around, it's like, hey, I'm hearing that maybe radical Islam's going to attack the Olympics, and that might lead to the final events of Daniel 11. Hey, I hear that ISIS might do this, they might do that, and it's just always this on edge, maybe ISIS is about to usher in the final events of Daniel 11, and friends, that's not what we are as a people. What we are as a people, we are God's people with a prophetic message. We are striving to be part of that remnant and the glorious holy mountain through whom, for whom Michael stands up for, that our names will be found written in the book, and Michael will be able to stand up for us because as we see the big picture of Daniel, Jesus is coming back in chapter 2. There's a judgment in chapter 7. There's a cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8. And in order for Jesus to come back, the judgment must be finished. And in order for the judgment to be finished, the sanctuary must be cleansed. And Ellen White tells us that in order for the sanctuary in heaven to be cleansed, there must be a cleansing in the hearts of God's people here on this earth. And as we are cleansed, then Michael can stand up. And so Jesus is not up in heaven waiting to see what Isis is is going to do. Jesus is waiting for a group of, of his saints who will be ready to withstand this final push by the king of the north so that even though sadly many Seventh-day Adventists in name, many professed Seventh-day Adventists will be overthrown by the papacy, there will be a faithful remnant who will stand on Mount Zion spiritually in Daniel 11.45 and it is for them that Michael will stand up. And when Michael stands up, probation closes, we will be delivered and he will come back to take us to heaven with him. And you know what, friends? I hope and pray with all of my heart that when Michael stands up, he will stand for me and he will stand for you. And the focus of our study and the focus of our lives should be on making sure that we are part of that special remnant that Michael stands up for, that as Jerusalem is being besieged in a spiritual sense, this last besiegement, the tabernacles of the palace, between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, and it seems like the Roman armies spiritually are surrounding us and there's no way out. It's at that time that Michael will stand up to deliver his people. And friends, we... we all we need to do is follow that more sure word of prophecy. We don't need to get, follow cunningly devised fables and interesting ideas that can be very well-meaning and very sincere, but it's distracting us from what our real and true message is, and that is of making sure that our hearts are right with God. So I hope that this presentation will, will shed some helpful light on some of the issues that are out there on Daniel 11. And I want to say again that, yes, I disagree with the individuals in question on their interpretation, but as I said before, they are very nice individuals, they are very sincere, they mean well. I don't think that people will be lost because of this, but necessarily, but my concern is, is that it can lead to an imbalance and a misapplication of prophetic principles that can lead to much confusion. So we want to make sure that we're following the more sure word of prophecy, that we follow the standard solid principles of historicism, and that when Jesus comes back, we will be ready to meet him. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads for a closing prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you that we had this time this afternoon to study again the prophecy of Daniel 11. Lord, I pray that as we, have, as we think upon these things that 
we would keep our eyes on Jesus, that we would look to Michael to deliver us, that our names would be found written in the book, that we would be delivered. And I pray, as Daniel 12, verse 3 says, that we would be wise, that we would shine as the brightness of the firmament and as the stars forever and ever. May we be among the ones who, through your power and glory, your light and your life would shine through us to give the final message to a lost and dying world. Thank you again for this time that we've had together this evening. Be with us until we meet again, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.